Welcome into the Solo Shot Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dom Mana. Happy Solo Shot Saturday, everyone. Apologies for the crack in Cooperstown. Little plug there. I will uh, be cutting that in post. But I did not want to cover this. Uh, I, I was hoping that there would be a lot more to talk about this week in baseball. But this ended up being one of the big buzz topics uh, from this past week. And it's that Angels paid superstar Anthony Rendon came out and said that we need to shorten this bad baby up 162 games in 185 days. That is just too much work. This is coming from the sixth highest paid player in the sport from a guy who has only played 200 games since signing that mega deal with the angels. And he's getting paid pretty much to not play. And this is a guy who's saying we have to shorten up the season. Not only is this a bad look for Anthony Rendon, but it's a bad look for baseball. And I feel like baseball has had problems with maintaining the interest of young people here in the USA. And having a star player talk about wanting to shorten the season when most other major sports leagues, if anything, they extend the season. It's just not a good look. And this is a guy who, when he was playing in Washington, especially during that World Series run, he was the best player on a, a best hitter, at least on a championship team. And that meant something. He got overpaid by the Angels, a little bit more money than people were expecting him to get. But he was one of those guys that, kind of like Jose Ramirez, was considered one of the best overall players in his league for a few seasons in a row, garnering some MVP consideration as well. He goes to the Angels. He's dealt with injuries and has been a thorn uh, in the side of Angels fans just for not interacting with the media. The the amount of times whether it's pretending to not know English uh, to get out of a, get out of pressers, uh, just disregarding and being disrespectful to the people that are just asking him questions for their job. And now for him to go out there and not only be on this podcast uh, where this clip was taken from and talk for over an hour with this guy about all different kinds of things, uh, but to throw in there when you're already looked at as one of the baseball's biggest freeloaders to say that, oh, they need to shorten the season is just unbelievable. Uh, if you're getting paid that kind of money, you don't have the room to complain about how long or short a season is. And Anthony Rendon, uh, just a, a tale of two halves in a career, a first half where some people were saying he's a sneaky future Hall of Famer. And now between the games missed, the attitude, uh, the mindset, there's just no shot he gets remembered for anything positive outside of the D.C. area from that championship run. So, uh, Anthony Rendon, let me know what you think in the chat below in the comments afterwards if you're listening post-recorded uh, about what you think about Anthony Rendon's comments and uh, if baseball, uh, if anybody else in baseball said what Anthony Rendon said, I think it would be taken with a much bigger uh, grain of salt and thought. Uh, if Mike Trout from the Angels, for instance, was coming out and saying that this needs to be done, uh, that would, I think, have a much bigger impact on the sport 
when it comes from a player who's only played 200 games in the last couple of years, has had a really bad attitude, has openly showed that he doesn't like baseball, and even had former teammates like Jonathan Papelbon, who played with him when he was actually playing games in Washington, and said, I can say this as a teammate, he straight up doesn't like baseball. He doesn't like the grind. He doesn't like the season. He doesn't like the interactions. He's just not a baseball guy. And that's a shame because he's super talented. He didn't just get that contract uh, for fun. He got that contract because the Angels believed in him being that protection in the lineup uh, for Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, and he has not delivered there. And I don't think he's going to deliver much for the rest of his career rotting away in Anaheim. And I doubt that anyone just the contract alone, they're not going to trade for, but when he has this kind of attitude, you are stuck with him. Uh, So Anthony Rendon, if you really don't like baseball that much, my advice would be to retire, hang it up. Baseball is not going to miss that attitude and you'll still make a crap ton of money that you haven't earned. So Moving on to something positive, I didn't want to talk about that, but I did have to address it. The 2024 Baseball Hall of Fame ballot, I misspoke a few episodes ago about when the announcement was. I misread it online somewhere, but they announced the election on Tuesday, and we have three new Hall of Famers that have recently went to Cooperstown and donned these amazing cream Hall of Fame jerseys and It is just absolutely amazing. So I want to go here and just break down the ballot a little bit. The Baseball Hall of Fame, you need to get 75% of the vote to get in. And it's very hard for players to get 75% of the vote. That's why still to this day, less than 1% of the players to ever appear in a Major League Baseball game are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. There was one slam dunk candidate. Adrian Beltre, who got 95.1% of the vote. And Adrian Beltre, for all intents and purposes, was a lock. This is a guy with over 3,000 hits, the most hits by both a third baseman as well as a Dominican player when he retired. And he is also a player that has 477 career home runs, a guy who was a gold glove defensive third baseman, Only Derek Jeter is the only other member of the 3,000 hit club and has five gold gloves as an infielder. And Adrian Beltre, for all intents and purposes, was a lock. We knew early in the tracker that he wasn't going to be 100% because someone didn't vote for him. And uh, we talked about that a little bit over on Kraken Cooperstown. But for the rest of the ballot, the fact that he dropped 5% almost... Uh, from what he was trending at 99 to the 95.1 that he got was a little bit surprising to me. Uh, But, you know, if you're going to leave Adrian Beltre off your Hall of Fame ballot for any other reason than to stop people from falling off the ballot who are in danger, there was some guys in serious danger this year of falling off that were able to squeak on. If that's your rationale, I'm completely behind it. But if you're not voting for Adrian Peltre and you're not using all 10 votes to do that kind of Cooperstown justice, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what sport you're watching. And I'm so happy for Adrian Beltre and his fans to see him go into the Baseball Hall of Fame. One of the last guys to swing so hard on a home run that he would drop to one knee, a la Reggie Jackson. 
Uh, so Adrian Beltre, slam dunk Hall of Famer, first ballot. The next one at 79.7% of the vote was Todd Helton. And Todd Helton was in his sixth year on the ballot. Todd Helton had been making strides all the way up to 72% of the ballot last year. And I'm just so happy for Mr. Rocky. Not only is he going to be on the Rockies, Mount Rushmore forever, but he is a legitimate Hall of Fame first baseman. 316 career average. This is a guy whose OPS on the road, if you're worried about the cores effect, was higher than the OPS or careers of Hall of Famers like Dave Winfield and Jim Rice. He was a true hitter, a great defender at first base as well, and a true stand-up guy. So far, through all the uh, different interviews that have been done uh, with the three electees, Todd Helton's have by far been the funniest. He's a guy that is humble. He's been waiting, unlike the other two that are first ballot. And I'm just so excited for his Hall of Fame speech. I think he's going to make that whole lawn uh, in Cooperstown laugh a lot during his speech in July. And finally, Joe Maurer, first ballot Hall of Famer. This is a guy who I said I watched him growing up and thought he was a Hall of Famer. And I was a little bit shocked to see that he was able to get over the hump 76.1% of the vote. He made election by four votes. If he got five less votes, he would have missed the cut. That's how important these votes are at the end of the day for these non-slam dunks. And Joe Maurer gets in on the first ballot. He was the first overall pick, a Minnesota high school legend who only struck out once in high school, drafted number one overall by his hometown twins, storybook beginning to his career, three batting titles as a catcher in four years. There have only been seven such seasons in Major League history where a catcher has won the batting title. Joe Maurer has three of them. and. Just an unbelievable hitter. Not a guy that scared you to go deep, but a guy who consistently got on base, consistently gave good at bats, was a slap ball hitter. And per these extra fun stats that we have now in the sabermetric age, he only popped up in the infield 31 times in his big league career. And Joe Maurer, of all hitters, recorded has flown out to the left fielder or hit a ball that was fielded by the left fielder more times than any other player with his many at-bats. So this is a guy who was a left-handed hitter, and he was hitting it opposite field, whether they were outs, whether they were hits that were fielded by the left fielder. Joe Maurer went the other way all the time, good enough to a 306 career average. And I know a lot of people are upset about his election because – he wasn't a catcher his whole career because of injuries. He moved to first base, and when he was at first base, he was about a league average player towards the end the last few years. But despite that fall off, that was not on his own. It was on the injuries that came with being a 6'5 catcher, taking the beating that he did behind the plate on his joints back and as well as his head and neck during all the collisions that were legal while he was catching. But he still ended his career with a 124 career OPS plus. So despite four years of league average batting at the end of his career, he still was 24% better over the entirety of his career uh, during that era than the average hitter. So he was amazing at a premium position, a guy that I think was a zero doubt hall of famer. 
And I'm so happy that he's in the Hall of Fame. I think him getting elected is going to bring up some questions about the catcher position going forward uh, because is it the hardware that got him over the top, the MVP and the three batting titles uh, with that short peak? Or are we going to start seeing catchers who didn't compile necessarily the traditional counting stats you look for getting elected into the Hall of Fame? We'll get to see that very soon with Buster Posey coming up on the ballot in a few years. As for the guys that did not make it, so congratulations to Joe Maurer, Todd Helton, Adrian Beltre, and all their families and fans. Billy Wagner was five votes short, uh, 73.8%. I personally left Billy Wagner off my ballot. Uh, when I vote next year, even though my vote doesn't count, I'm going to check the box on Billy Wagner. One, because three guys I just voted for are now off. Two, it's his last year, and I don't want to be the reason he doesn't get into Cooperstown when that many people think he's worthy. Um, he's not someone that's so far away, but he's someone that I personally wouldn't celebrate, uh, but you don't want to see him miss it in year 10 when he was five votes away in year nine. So Billy Wagner should get in next year, but you never know. Uh, there's been multiple times in history where pitchers have gotten 70-something percent of the vote and then ended up not getting elected through the writers, a la Jim Bunning, a la Kurt Schilling. So there is always a chance. The next one was Gary Sheffield, who fell way below his projected thing in the Hall of Fame tractor. 63% of the vote. The Baseball Hall of Fame failed Gary Sheffield. This is a guy who was named in reports absolutely. He had steroid suspicion, but he played past the 2003 deadline when they were suspending players for using performance enhancing drugs and he never tested positive enforcing a suspension after the rules were made that doesn't mean that he wasn't using it before but we really just don't know and this is a guy with over 500 career home runs over 1600 runs driven in a true feared hitter with one of the most iconic batting stances of all time and the fact that he was lingering behind bonds clemens etc for many years on the ballot, his first eight. Uh, and by the time he was between year nine and 10, he had a big jump. He, he jumped like, I think, 9%. Uh, if he was doing that consistently over the years, he would have gotten elected. But it was too little too late for Gary Sheffield. And now he's going to be dealing with the same thing he dealt with the first eight years on the ballot, sitting behind Bonds and Clemens, waiting for those error committees to hopefully turn over a new leaf on potential steroid users, even though I think they've already elected a few guys from that era that potentially could have been using. But you don't know, and I'm not going to find the guys guilty unless they were found guilty by Major League Baseball, a la Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez, who served suspensions for using steroids. Um, that was a big shame to me. Other interesting guys, Andrew Jones only moved up 3% to 61.6%. Uh, this is going to be an interesting thing that comes down to the wire for him. He's now less than 15% of the way from election, but he's going into year eight. And next year, uh, Ichiro and CC Sabathia are coming on as two first ballot guys who could easily just take all the Joe Maurer and Adrian Beltre votes. So spots aren't really opening up for Andrew Jones to be voted for by new guys. And, you also have the people that want to keep getting Billy Wagner in because he's at year 10 or keeping 
their favorite guy on the bottom of the ballot. So Andrew Jones gaining some momentum in year eight, I think is unlikely. I think he's hoping to go up another few percent. So in year nine and year 10, when you get that push from the general voting public, you can get elected. But 10 gold gloves, 400 home runs, only four men in history have ever done that. Uh, Mike Schmidt, uh, Ken Griffey Jr., and uh, Willie Mays, along with the Andrew Jones. So he's a guy that's clearly deserving in my mind. He had a terrible finish to his career in his 30s. Uh, the only bright spot of his 30s was that he got over 400 career home runs to put him in that elite company. Uh, but Andrew Jones didn't make a massive jump, uh, and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to make a massive jump until year 9 or year 10. And we just talked about that with Gary Sheffield. It could be too little too late. So I hope Andrew Jones gains some steam uh, during this next Hall of Fame voting season. And the final guy I want to talk about from the ballot is Carlos Beltran. This is a guy who is not a borderline Hall of Famer. He is one of the best center fielders to ever play the game all around. He was an amazing hitter, a guy who stole well over 300 bases and is truly one of the best switch hitters of all time. The only switch hitters in Major League history with over 400 career home runs are Mickey Mantle, Eddie Murray, Chipper Jones, and Carlos Beltran. I understand his last season in the Major Leagues. He won a championship as a bench player for the Houston Astros and was kind of just boycotted as the ringleader of that scandal. But him jumping from 45% to 57 I really like to see that. I think a 10, 11 at a time. If he can do that consistently, he'll get in in this first five ballots, which, I mean, to me, he would have been a first or second ballot guy originally. So I'm glad to see that more people are coming to his aid. I did see some people that voted for him in year one that didn't vote for him in year two, which I found very interesting. Uh, but I do think that Carlos Beltran will continue to garner support as we get further away from the Astros scandal. And now that he doesn't have to worry about, oh, he was first baller, just missed the first time, and we put him in the second time like Vladimir Guerrero Sr. Now the ballot's open for Carlos Beltran to hopefully make some gains. Like I said, it's going to be hard to get some new voters if they're trying to keep guys on the end, if they're trying to give Billy Wagner a vote to get him in in the final year, and with two slam dunk first ballot guys coming on in 2025. But Hall of Fame season is finished, and it's my favorite time of the baseball year. Uh, no, notable names past Ichiro and CC Sabathia on the 2025 Hall of Fame ballot are King Felix Hernandez, Dustin Pedroia, and Ian Kinsler. Those are the other three guys that I think have really solid shots at getting the 5% threshold. There's also some other stars like Adam Jones and Brian McCann, uh, Troy Tulowitzki, Hanley Ramirez, some guys that I watched a lot growing up. And uh, it's funny to see those names popping up on the Hall of Fame ballot. But nonetheless, I do think we'll have two more first ballot Hall of Famers with Ichiro uh, having over 4,000 professional career hits between Japan and the U.S. Uh, and being one of the greatest defensive right fielders of all time. And then you have CeCe Sabathia, 250 wins as a lefty is a lot. And he is one of 19 pitchers in Major League history with 3,000 strikeouts without any steroid suspicion. So that should garner him some very serious support from the voting cohort. So Hall of Fame, a lot of positive things to talk about. Uh, some other guys that just hanged on to the ballot that will be in danger yet again next year. David Wright in his first year on the ballot got 6.2%. Tory Hunter, 7.3%. 
K-Rod dropped to 7.8%. Mark Burley, 8.3%. He's down. And those four guys are going to be on the bubble for a lot of people for the coming years. They might not all get to 10, uh, but there are people that support all four of those cases, and it will be interesting to see if they can continue to support them going forward. There have been some small signings in Major League Baseball as we wait for the last couple big fish to fall. Uh, the first one that I saw that I actually really liked was the Dimebacks continued to add, and they got Jock Peterson, who knows the NL West very well, having successful seasons with the Dodgers and Giants, respectively. And he just is a perfect fit for that outfield. They need some extra power. He's a guy who can platoon, is a specialist against righties, doesn't hit lefties well at all. But you can platoon him, give Lourdes Gurriel some days off in the outfield. You can use him if uh, a guy like Alec Thomas is struggling in the outfield to hit. You can put Jock Peterson in there for a good pat. And I just really like what the Snakes have done this offseason. I know there's been a ton of attention on the Giants' historic, uh, on the Dodgers' historic offseason and the Giants just completely whiffing on all the top free agents. But the Dimebacks, I think, are the sneaky winners of this offseason. And uh, I think they're going to just be right in the thin thick of things going forward uh, with all the moves they've made. Eugenio Suarez, bringing back Lourdes Gurriel, signing Eduardo Rodriguez. I really like what the Snakes are doing. And I think adding uh, a bat like Jock Peterson was a no-brainer for them. Another signing, uh, those Pittsburgh Pirates went out there and they paid Aroldis Chapman to come to town. I don't know if he's going to be the closer or not but they're paying him closer money. Uh, it's, I believe, one year, $13.5 million. Aroldis Chapman had a very good first half with the Kansas City Royals last offseason. And during that season, he was one of the better relievers in baseball during that first half of the season. He gets traded to Texas for a pretty nice haul, and it was amazing to see how many opportunities he blew in Texas, but he kept getting the opportunity because Texas's bullpen was not deep and he had just complete gas. So they were willing to ride him and use him for matchups. Uh, like I said, a lot of lefties can't hit other lefties. So they were just hoping for the best with his stuff. The pirates aren't in contention. And I do think this is a, a sign and trade almost, uh, they are just hoping that when you get to the trade deadline, there's some injuries or a sneaky contender that needs bullpen help, and they can trade a Roldis Chapman to that team, shed a little bit of payroll, and get a nice prospect back for a Roldis Chapman services. He has been a hired gun multiple times in his career for the Cubs, for the Yankees. So there, there's a ton of times where Roldis Chapman has been moved now, and I expect that to kind of be the case. But that first half of the season in Pittsburgh is going to be interesting to see. Can he rebound from what he was doing in Texas? Or is that more of the norm for him going forward? Uh, one of the best flamethrower pitchers we've seen in the last decade. Now, the next move was the Texas Rangers saying, well, we lost Chapman, but let's sign David Robertson from the Miami Marlins. This is a guy who has had some really nice runs in his career with the Yankees and Cubs, respectively. And I like that signing for Texas, but like I said, pitching's expensive. It was a $10.5 million deal for David Robertson. 
I will take David Robertson for $3 million less than Aroldis Chapman, but I don't love paying either of them in their 30s. 10 plus million dollars a season but that's just the going rate i guess if you don't want to trade prospects for relievers later so david robertson aroldis chapman jock peterson there's been some small moves and they're always fun to keep up with and i hope that some of these other guys that are still out there somehow uh end up finding their way onto rosters before pitchers and catchers arrive before we get into spring training here at the Solo Shot Sports Podcast, we like to throw it back down the third base line to this day in baseball history. Uh, baseball has such a rich history, and we like to throw back to those moments and players that just don't get the love or attention that they did when they were playing, uh, and some of them didn't even get it while they were playing. January 27th wasn't the strongest day, I'll be honest, in baseball history, but there was one transaction that stuck out well above the others, and that was on this date in 1982. The Chicago Cubs acquired Larry Boa and infielder Ryan Sandberg from the Philadelphia Phillies for shortstop Ivan DeJesus. Now, some of you will know the name Larry Boa, at the time of this trade, he was 36 years old and his all-star and best years were well behind him. Some of you have not heard the name Ivan DeJesus before, and you're assuming because he was traded for a former star like Larry Boa and a future Hall of Famer like Ryan Sandberg that, well, he must have been a very good shortstop in his prime. Well, Ivan DeJesus was 29 years old and he had a good glove at short, but he wasn't in imposing hitter uh, he actually had pretty low career stats coming into the trade and he only had one decent season in philadelphia so ryan sandberg just completely got snaked in one of the best trades in history and it's great for the cubs because they have one of the most lopsided trades in baseball history when they traded lou brock to the cardinals for ernie broglio and them getting a win a couple decades later uh, is very nice. Ryan Sandberg, a lot of you know him as Rhino. You know he's a Hall of Fame second baseman, but I don't think a lot of people talk about just how good Ryan Sandberg is. This is a guy who had 67.9 career war, which for second baseman is a heck of a lot. 2,386 career hits, 282 home runs, a career 285 hitter. This guy was a 10-time All-Star, won seven Silver Sluggers and nine Gold Gloves at second base. This was a true all-around player, MVP, Home Run Derby Championship. And this is a guy, he did this all pretty consecutively. The Gold Gloves were all in a row. The Silver Sluggers, there was a couple years in between where he didn't win them. He had stretches of three in a row and five in a row and was a guy that was a perennial all-star that was well-respected. During his MVP season in 1984, two years after the trade, he led Major League Baseball in runs with 114. He led it in triples with 19 triples. He had as many triples as home runs and won the MVP, 19 home runs, 84 RBIs, 32 stolen bases. So he was a sneaky stolen base guy, over 344 career stolen bases. Uh, and 
something that I respect about him is he was able to put together a slash line of 314, 367, and 520, striking out twice as much as he walked. So transitioning into the modern day game where players strike out a ton, he was almost he was on that trajectory, but he still had the batting average. He still had the stolen bases. He still walked a little bit. He was a true well-rounded player uh, that had over 300 total bases in that season. Uh, just an amazing, amazing player that I don't think gets talked about enough. When you, as a second baseman especially, can have over 1,300 runs scored, can have over 400 doubles, can have 282 uh, home runs and 1,061 RBI, 344 stolen bases, it's just unbelievable uh, that a player can provide that kind of value with gold glove level defense at a position that's often forgot about. Second base is usually hitting at the top of your lineup or at the very bottom. Uh, there's a few good second basemen in the sport right now. We got Marcus Simeon. We got Jose Altuve. We got Ozzy Albies from the Braves. There's a handful, Luis Arise. There's also a lot of second basemen that are hitting ninth <laughs> then just are hoping to have a stretch where they're as good as Ryan Sandberg was for his 16-year career. So the Phillies really messed up with that one. They didn't really know what they had uh, with Sandberg. He played six games with the Phillies in 81 and didn't do well. But that's such a small sample size. And the fact that the Cubs were able to make that steal of a trade on this date in 1982, I think it just needed to be highlighted. Go check out Ryan Sandberg's baseball reference page. You might just forget how good he really was. But the clock is ticking, folks. Not just on this podcast almost ending. Not just on the fact that pitchers and catchers will report in just a couple weeks to spring training. Thank the Lord. I'm so excited for baseball to be back. Not that playoff football hasn't been great. Not that basketball has been having some amazing performances lately. Uh, but I am I'm ready for baseball to be back and to swing and to talk about things going forward for the season. But the clock is ticking for these big free agents. Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, where are they going to sign? There's still so many decent bats out there. Adam Duvall doesn't have a home. Justin Turner hasn't signed anywhere. Where are these guys going to go? The clock is kind of ticking for them. I know there's reports right now that the Texas Rangers are looking to re-sign Jordan Montgomery. I don't know if signing David Robertson for uh, $10.5 million is going to affect that contract at all. I doubt it. If they're willing to pay that, they should be willing to pay Montgomery after what he did for them. But Blake Snell, I talked about it last week. I don't know what he's going to sign for. I don't know where he's going to sign. I just hope it's somewhere. And based off the Rendon comments to start this episode, I really hope it's not the Angels because that would just be the worst possible place for him to go right now. I appreciate each and every one of you for watching this week. Those of you that were here live in the chat, those of you that are listening to this days later on podcast or on YouTube, I appreciate each and every one of you. Hope you guys have an amazing solo shot Saturday and great rest of your week. Enjoy the championship football games this Sunday. Enjoy waiting for these big ticket free agents to get homes and Let's continue the countdown to spring training. Have a good one. Peace.